Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll see if no-bake grasshopper pie rekindled fond childhood memories, and we'll leave you with one last recipe to help you chill out, a simple almond granita. Finally, we'll have a roundup of listeners' favorite sweets to beat the heat. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, I am still cranking my way through my new favorite cookbook, Midwest Made by Shauna Seaver. So awesome. I had my first flop. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Well, that's inevitable. I mean, what cookbook doesn't have at least one? Well, and I can't blame the cookbook. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah. What cook doesn't have at least one flop, right? We know. At least. At least. Yeah. So this was the recipe for the Italian bread. And this is the first thing I've made from the cookbook that wasn't a pastry or a sweet. So just a regular weeknight bread. I had a bowl of Italian soup. I made this bread to go alongside it. I was super excited. So the first rise is a 30-minute rise, Mm -hmm. and I had read a couple of comments from people who had previously made it Mm -hmm. who said they let it rise for one hour and had better luck. I went ahead and did that first rise for one hour. And then the instructions for the second rise say to go ahead and shape your bread and then place it on your parchment-lined baking sheets. Mm -hmm. Allow it to rise an additional three hours. And so I read that, and I popped it back into my oven, which was nice and warmed and working as a proofing box. Right. And I skipped the part of the line, the last final three words of that instruction, which was to let it rise for another three hours in the fridge. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that yeah. sounds like a really long time at, at a room temp or a warm temp. For your second rise using the second rise. instant yeast. Yeah. It, it just Okay. You know how things strike you and you're like, this can't be right. But then, you know, you're just doing a million other things. So you just keep on rolling. I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, what happened? Yeah. I didn't even peek at it as I was doing that three-hour rise. I had other stuff going on. So It wasn't until the timer went off and I pulled it out that I went, oh, no, because my beautifully shaped sort of baguette-like loaves had completely risen and then split. So the tops were just like completely open. They almost looked like dough that maybe you had pulled off of some rough surface. I thought, oh, no. And I I couldn't bear to throw it away. So I looked online at a couple of things like, can you rescue overproofed bread? And a lot of people said you can, that a lot of dough still has enough spring in it left for a third rise. Mm -hmm. So I did go ahead and reshape it, and I let it sit for another mm, 20 or 30 minutes. Oh. Nothing much was happening, and meanwhile, dinner hour was rapidly approaching. So I went ahead and baked it. I have to say the flavor was still really good, but it was very dense, and, you know, it just didn't rise and get that fluffiness. So 100% my fault. I am going to definitely make her Italian bread again. Yeah. But I wanted to throw it out to the listeners and ask them if they've had any experience rescuing overproofed bread or 
maybe what I could have or should have done differently after I screwed up that second rise. You know how last episode you were like, I have some thoughts on Pavlova. I have some thoughts on <laughs> your overproved bread. <laughs> Let me hear it. Well, my first thought is, is a thought. It's, it's a comment in that the three hour in the um, fridge is so you. Like that sounds like it's the perfect bread recipe for you. So I think that when you do follow this to the letter, it's going to be great. You know, I think we all appreciate those recipes you can walk away from for a little bit of time which is not always the case when you're doing a bread because you do have to be back in, in time for the rise time to end. And I think that's part of my problem is I traditionally do bread one of two ways. I either do a bread with a yeast, and that's Alexandra Stafford's no-need peasant bread. Amen, yes. It has about a 45-minute rise for the first rise and then about, you know, another 20 to 30 minutes for the second rise, mm -hmm. and it's all on the counter or, you know, in your proofing box. Or... I do a sourdough no-knead bread using my sourdough starter, no yeast, that requires an overnight in the fridge. Okay. So I think my brain just didn't process that I would be doing a second rise in the fridge that wasn't overnight. And so I know you might not have the recipe in front of you, but I'm just curious, did she indeed have a third rise once you pull it out of the fridge or did it go straight from the fridge to the oven? No. Um, you know, I'm saying no with great confidence, but that's usually... <laughs> when you most need to check my memory. So I want to say no. How about that? <laughs> well, that's interesting. That's interesting to me that you wouldn't let it come up a little bit warmer before putting it in the oven. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I know you don't have the recipe in front of you. I'm just wondering how she does that because then maybe you do do the third rise. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, just fascinating. Lots yeah, of yeah. like science things going on here. Okay. My next comment is, after you did the three-hour right. and it got like really huge and kind of took on a life of its own, yes, were you able then to knock it back enough so it made like the baguette shape again? Or was it just like too unwieldy? No, I had no problem knocking it back and remaking the baguette shape. That was not okay. a problem at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. You just thought the finished product then was that's when it was just the two, the two dents. It had gotten so big that I actually split it into two loaves. Right. It made sort of these long, skinny baguettes as opposed to maybe a fatter baguette. And then it never rose or expanded from that skinny shape. Mm -hmm. I think the yeast was dead after that. And it was like, look, lady, I have already done this twice for you. I'm done. <laughs> I was supposed to be in the yeah, fridge. Yeah, me off and let me go. So... Yeah, I didn't really get that full shaped baguette that I really wanted. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would be fascinated because I can see overproving bread for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, my kitchen's super hot right now. I would have a hard time not overproving just on the counter, for example. So, yeah, it seems a shame that you just have to get rid of it. Yeah. I think our listeners will have experience. They always have good suggestions. I promise that I will place. In the show notes for this episode, episode 187, some information from the actual recipe. I apologize. I don't have that in front of me right now. So I'll tell you what you're supposed to do, <laughs> not just what I think you're supposed to do, because those might, in fact, be two different things. Okay. <laughs> Listeners, yeah, weigh in. I'm sure, I'm sure people have had this issue. Oh, yeah. So you're not the only one. Thank you. Hey, Andrea, this is our last episode of the summer before we go on our little summer hiatus that we do every August. I just wanted to let you know something I'm going to be reading 
this summer with great anticipation, I'm cracking open a book called Pride and Pudding, The History of British Puddings by Regula Yeswine. Okay, wait a minute. Pride and Pudding, is that a takeoff yes. on our favorite Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice? Of course it is. <laughs> I will post a picture or put a link in the show notes so you can see the beautiful, it's got a very Victorian era lady kind of coming out of a, um, <laughs> looks like a jello mold, but we know it's a steamed pudding, right? Oh my gosh. It is such a beautiful cookbook. Several months ago, I read a magazine interview with a woman who had for Lent followed a very strict World War II era rationing diet. So she only ate things that people during rationing would have been able to. And it was a really interesting experiment. It was a really interesting article. And, you know, she dived very deeply into what people were eating and really more to the point what people couldn't eat at the time. And it was really interesting. Okay. In that article, she referenced this book. And I just knew, I almost like immediately put the magazine down and went to buy it because I was like, pride and pudding, I am in. (laughs) So this is a cookbook though. It's not a fiction book. It's a cookbook. Okay. All right. Because it also sounds like a great fiction book title to me. <laughs> Preheated should go into the uh, the novel industry for sure. I love it. Yeah, it's it's a um, history of British puddings, savory and sweet. And so it's my favorite kind of cookbook because it has all the history. You can read it like a nonfiction book. And then she has all of these recipes. I mean, I just have to read you the titles of the chapters. Okay. Some of which you're going to remember because we've actually – done a fair few, you know, historical British things. So boiled and steamed puddings. And Andrea, she's got three dozen. And, you know, we did Sussex Pond Pudding back in 73.5, I think it was. And you've done other variations in your Instant Pot and other things since then. And, of course, our our figgy pudding, our famous holiday figgy pudding. That was fabulous. Figgy pudding. Oh, my gosh. Baked puddings. Oh. Batter puddings bread puddings, including one called the Poor Knights of Windsor. I mean, the names alone are just the best. (laughs) Jellies, milk puddings, and ices. And in this category, guess what's here? I don't know. Uh, uh, You do know. No, I don't. Flummery. Flummery from way back in 12.5 is here. I was going to guess, and I couldn't remember the word of it, but it was the cream ice dessert that was sort of had beer in it was it a cassette or possette possette that was it there is there is a million of those here too so i promise to report when we come back in september all that i have learned or just a pared down version of what i am bound to learn in pride and pudding and if you want to check something out if you're looking for something to dive into and read and if you also have a passion for food history like i do then you can't go far wrong as far as I'm concerned with Pride in Pudding, the history of British puddings by regular Yeswine. Well, I am expecting a lot of informational quotes moving forward from okay. this book. <laughs> You'll so. just be like, Stefan, do you have any British food history on this? <laughs> say, yes, indeed, I do. I can't wait. Well, we just couldn't be any more opposite than British food history, but we're going to dive into a little bit of American food history when we review this week's Bake Along which was our no-bake grasshopper pie from Elaine Lem via the Spruce Eats. This is a pie that, for me, was very prevalent in my childhood, and I absolutely loved it. 
And I'm convinced it was because of the bright green color. Yeah. When you're a kid, the idea of eating a bright green food that's not a vegetable is very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) And Andrea, I had this flashback in college. One of the work-study jobs that I did was in an office on campus. And there was this absolute frenzy when one of the women in the office would bring in her creme de menthe brownies. I mean, people would like meet me at the door as I was like coming into work and they'd be like, Cynthia's made her creme de menthe brownies. <laughs> Line up now. Yes, exactly. And if you're not familiar with this liqueur, which is really the key to this pie, it is absolutely shocking green. That is one of the keys for the flavor and also for the color of this pie, I think. And Stefan, last week you mentioned a recipe for homemade creme de menthe. Mm -hmm. Is that also a shockingly green via the food coloring, I'm guessing? I'm guessing it's not, actually. So that is very simple. It's just a cup and a half of fresh mint Mm. leaves, one and a half cups of (laughs) vodka, one and a half cups of sugar, and a little water. So, you know, potentially you get a little natural Mm -hmm. chlorophyll, I guess, from that mint. But I'm guessing it's more clear. Yeah, so if you did make your own or you didn't want to use the creme de menthe, but you still wanted that vibrant green color, you're going to have to go with uh, food coloring. Yeah. I knew that I had had a grasshopper pie more recently, and I couldn't remember where it was. And I was thinking about it and thinking about it. And I was texting with listener Craig about some of his recent successful bakes he's been making. And all of a sudden, it came to me that it was his mom. And I said, doesn't your mom make a grasshopper pie? And he immediately sent me her recipe. And I'm so disappointed that I couldn't remember this before we picked a recipe because I would have used her recipe. One of the main reasons I am fascinated by her recipe is that her crust is made of chocolate chips, a little bit of shortening, and chopped nuts. Oh my gosh. Well, how interesting Mm -hmm. is that? Because (laughs) let me start my review. (laughs) Well, that's what I thought. Perfect segue. So our recipe called for 12 ounces of chocolate digestive biscuits along with three quarters of a cup of butter. Why don't you tell us how you did that? Last week when we were talking about this recipe, we had kind of wondered aloud if Elaine was British or was writing for a British audience when she was writing this recipe. Because although a grasshopper pie is a very uniquely American dessert, right off the bat, that first ingredient for the chocolate digestive just screams British to me. I mean, digestive biscuits are so, so popular here. That's what gave me a little bit of pause. I was really wanting this crust to be just the chocolate part of the Oreo, as you mentioned last week. What are those called, in fact, Andrea? You can buy them off the shelf. Are they called famous wafer cookies? Are they called famous chocolate biscuits? You know the one I'm talking about? I do. They're very thin, and they're essentially just the Oreo chocolate part. Yeah, they basically are. I can usually get those. I wasn't able to find those myself this time. Okay. I also did not want to use Oreos. So I'll, I'll hold my thoughts, but let me just say that I, I can't contribute a lot on the chocolate wafer forefront because I went rogue. Okay. Well, so did I. Oh, For what? Like the fourth time in a row. This is getting to be a... <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So if you buy something called a chocolate digestive off the shelf here, and please, British listeners, if I have this wrong, let me know because I looked high and low for just a plain chocolate biscuit. But a chocolate digestive here is more like a graham cracker with chocolate on one side. So after I'd crushed that up with my butter, 
or I'm in the process of crushing it up, I looked at it and I thought, this is not going to be near chocolatey enough for what I want. I melted some milk chocolate I had that was 90 grams of a Green and Black's baking bar, and then I put 80 grams of butter to make 170 grams or three quarters cup of butter, which the original called for. So now I've got a blend of butter and chocolate. I mixed that with my digestive cookies. It made it immediately more chocolatey. And I pressed that into my pie tin, which kind of sounds like Craig's mom with the Uh chocolate chips. See, you ended up doing that, not even knowing that that was an option. I love it. even. How did you go rogue on the crust? I'm going to say how I went rogue, but I want to pop in real quick and give a little shout out to this author because here we are talking about she seems British, but it's in this, you know, Spruce Eats. And indeed, she is British born. And she looks like she currently lives in North Yorkshire. Okay. And she was the food and wine editor at Yorkshire Life magazine. And she's written for Waitrose and Olive Mm -hmm. and also worked for the New York Times Company writing extensively online about British and Irish food. Okay. I think she uh, definitely has her origins in Britain, obviously, quite deeply. And that's why we're seeing this uh, recipe that's making you go, gosh, this sounds so British to me. Yeah, or it's definitely a hybrid. Yes. I, yeah, I guess absolutely. Like me. Yeah, a little bit like you. So on my crust, when I learned that I couldn't get the chocolate digestive wafers and I knew what I was looking for and I was in the grocery store where they sell, the brand that I can get is Anna's. Yes, Anna's. Yes. Yes. Anna's Swedish Thins. And they had... Uh, ginger, they had an orange, and they had a lemon. All three of those looked fabulous. You know, when you look at this picture in Elaine's recipe, I have to say her crust does not look chocolate to me. And so I decided to just go a little crazy and use the ginger thins. What? You know, ginger and mint is not something I would necessarily put together, but I decided to do it. Oh. Okay. So an adjustment that I had to make, though, to the butter because of my choice of ginger cookies, my box of Anna's Swedish Ginger Thins was 5.25 ounces. I bought two of the boxes, which means I had 10 and a half ounces. It was calling for three quarters cup of butter. And so I decided to cut back on the butter since I didn't have the full 12 ounces of cookies. Yeah, you were really close. You know, and since I'm kind of lazy, I just went ahead and used a half a cup or eight tablespoons of butter, a full stick of butter. I did feel when I was making the crust, I thought, this seems like a lot of butter compared to my usual crumb crust. I did a quick little internet research, and lo and behold, when you are doing a no-bake crust, you do use more fat. Okay. Because you're not going through that baking process, and so you need more fat to sort of keep the crust together. So I was reassured. That even though it felt like a lot of butter to me, that it was okay. And I did use my big deep dish pie pan. So I didn't use the nine inch spring form as called for in the recipe. I did not use a lining of parchment paper or a grease poof paper. I just went ahead and put my crumb crust straight into my deep dish pie pan. I did that too, Andrea, for exactly the same reasons. It seemed like a lot of work there with the spring form. Also, please, let's talk this through. (laughs) So if I would have used a spring form, 
In step five, she says to press the crumb and butter mix into the spring form to create a flat base. Okay, no problem there. But then you're going one inch up the side of the pan. I'm thinking about this. I read this half a dozen times. When I'm ready to serve that and I release the sides, wouldn't they collapse? Because it's going to be all thoroughly frozen. But mine has, like to get up to one inch, there's like that lip where it's the edge of the, the bottom and the surrounding side. I don't know. Something about it did not seem structurally possible to me. <laughs> and again, I think for me, uh, the reason I ignored that instruction is, again, I went back to the photo that was included with this. And in the photo, you can see, clearly see her crust rises a good half inch above her filling. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of crust, and I just thought, I'm going to use it. I used almost all of it. I just reserved some for a uh, topping. I just could not get my mind around how that would stay put after I released the sides. And that may just have been a momentary lapse of sanity mm -hmm. or whatever was going on. I too reached for my deep dish pie plate and it worked great. I, the crust fit in there well. It's a nice scalloped plate, so it looked really pretty. And then at that point, you pop it in the fridge to firm up while you make your filling. So now we are on to step six and we have finally reached the marshmallow fluff, creme de menthe, and whipping cream, which is really all that filling consists of, you put the fluff into a large bowl and add the creme de menthe and whisk to combine. Andrea, did yours make a funny texture at this point? Mine did not make a funny texture, but my handwritten note says, not good to taste. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know that I've had creme de menthe in terms, I mean, I've never ordered a grasshopper cocktail. I can't think of any recipe. I mean, I didn't have a friend making the creme de menthe brownies such as you did. <laughs> I just don't know the last time that I've tasted it. Mm -hmm. When I tasted the mixture of marshmallow fluff and creme de menthe, I was like, uh, this isn't good. And so I started to get a little bit nervous, but it did incorporate. I used my full-on whisk attachment in my stand mixer. I really got it nice and incorporated together. Okay, I did not use my stand mixer. I just used a hand whisk. And maybe mm. that would have been better. It just looked yeah. a little curdled and split, and I had to really work at it to get it to incorporate. So once you have those two combined, then in another mixing bowl or with your stand mixer, which I did use at this point, you whip the cream to soft peaks, and then you're going to carefully fold that into the marshmallow mixture. Andrea, here she has kind of an interesting instruction. Using a metal spoon, do not use a wooden spoon, as you will knock the air from the cream. I've never heard that distinction. Okay, so I underlined that as well and put a big question mark and said, I've never heard this, but I did yeah. follow the instruction. Typically, what I will do when I'm folding in a whipped cream into something else is use my rubber spatula. Right. So I think you're accomplishing kind of the same thing by using a metal spoon, but I know, I, I found that curious too, but I thought, well, I've broken all the other rules. I might as well follow her instruction on at least this one because I do have a metal spoon. And I do think it incorporated quite nicely. Yeah, at that point, it came together really nicely. But when I tasted it, I thought it was very mild. It was both very mild and it was very pale green. And for all the screaming intensity of the creme de menthe by itself, I wanted more green color. So here I put about another tablespoon and a half of the creme de menthe, and it turned it a little bit darker, and it was more minty. Oh, okay. Now, I also tasted it here, and I would agree that it was mild, but that reassured me because I was really nervous after having tasted 
the mixture of just the creme de menthe and the marshmallow fluff and not loving that. Mm -hmm. And with the whipped cream mixed in, I just felt it smoothed it and just made uh, just an incredible flavor. So at that point, I was excited because I was like, okay, this is only going to, you know, get better as it sits and infuses. And I think a lot of times with those mint flavors and extract flavors, sometimes you need a couple of hours for it to sort of, I don't know, permeate the whipped cream for lack of a better term. And I think the creme de menthe, in addition to the color and the and the flavor, it's one of those alcohols that like cools off your mouth. I don't know if you just had a sip of it by itself, but it has that chilling effect. So not only is it frozen, but then you're getting kind of extra coldness from the creme de menthe. Well, as I mentioned, the mini airplane bottle that I used had the four tablespoons and then about a shot left over. So even though it was the middle of the day, I thought, what the heck? <laughs> I poured myself a shot of creme de menthe and I took it and it's bracing. I mean, that is, yes, is yes. definitely... Bracing is a great mm-hmm, word. That's the word. And I mean, I had to go lie down. I thought just... <laughs> I I thought, wow, this is shocking to me that perhaps I was having this as a child. I thought I liked the grasshopper pie because of the green color, but who knows? <laughs> Maybe I was really enjoying that little shot of creme de menthe. It's not something I would uh, be ordering in a bar for a cocktail, believe me. But I thought for mine, it just provided the perfect amount of mint flavor. I had to sort of rearrange my freezer to be able to fit this in you know it's always a little tricky fitting a whole pie in to freeze yep luckily that night we were going to the next door neighbors and I brought it over and they had to rearrange their freezer to fit it in and that was a little embarrassing I was like oh gosh that's not the best thing to show up with it's like hey clear out your freezer for me (laughs) and um, they served dinner and so we had the dinner and we were all sitting around we were playing games and stuff and someone finally said something along the lines of like I thought we were going to have a dessert. And I went, oh, my pie. Because, you know, once it's in the freezer, it was like yeah, out, out of sight, sight out, out of mind. mind. Yeah. I did pull it. And then I told everyone, okay, now we have to wait. And so we waited about 15 minutes and then ate it. And it was a huge hit. Everyone asked if it was an ice cream pie. They yeah. all thought mm-hmm. they were eating a mint ice cream pie. And so yeah. that was kind of fun that it wasn't an ice cream pie, although, you know, it certainly gave that impression. I had a little tiny bit of trouble getting the crust out of the pan. I mean, it was a little hard. But part of that was now we were sort of waiting for it to be served. So I think if I had waited the full 20 minutes or maybe even 25 or 30, it might have been a little bit better. Mm. But my husband mentioned really liking the texture of it still being a little bit frozen. Yeah. I don't know. I think you could kind of play around with that and figure out when your favorite serving time is. How about you, Stefan? What did people think when you served it? This was not an overly huge hit in my house or with me. And I'm really sorry about that because I was so looking forward to it. Yeah. What I wanted was a chocolate crust, just a pure chocolate crust. I don't want the graham cracker taste at all. And even though I pumped it up with the melted chocolate, it wasn't chocolatey enough. So mm-hmm. making this again with just those, mm. the Oreo or the absolute chocolate biscuits would be my way to go with it the filling texture you're right I mean look at that it's a no churn ice cream you know marshmallow fluff a little bit of the liqueur and the whipping cream I thought it would be fun you could even do like a riff on mint chocolate chip ice cream you could put some mini chips in there that wasn't a problem at all again it was really pale and really mild and who knows Andrea maybe like 
creme de menthe that's sold here is a different beast than U.S. creme de menthe. I don't exactly know, but I just wanted it more minty. I wanted it really, really minty and really, really chocolatey. And I need to to tweak the recipe so that that will happen because otherwise it's really fun to eat a frozen pie. My son maybe liked it most of all. And I mean, he's a big ice cream person. He likes that. He likes mint. So it wasn't entirely unpopular. I just thought that with a few tweaks, I could make it into a home run for my family. Well, and I'll post Craig's mom's recipe because I do think it's so interesting. You know, I mentioned that she does the chocolate morsels and a little bit of shortening and the finely chopped nuts for the crust. And then her filling is half a pound of marshmallows, a third a cup of milk, a quarter teaspoon of salt, three tablespoons of the creme de menthe, and then three tablespoons of creme de cacao. Are you, I don't know that liqueur. Creme de cocoa? That's a chocolate, yeah. So chocolate and mint. She's she's putting the flavors together in the filling. Intriguing. And she wrote white. She wrote three tablespoons white creme de cocoa or creme de cacao. So maybe there's two different kinds and, you know, you don't want the brown Just one so if it there is one. muddy. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then half a cup of heavy cream whipped. Similar ingredients with the marshmallows and the cream and the liqueur, but the addition of some milk and very different proportions. I mean, I think you will find a way to play around with this so that it sort of meets everyone's desires. And I think if you're after that chocolate mint hit, you won't want to do what I did. But I have to tell you, something about this ginger crust with the mint filling really worked for me. And everyone who had it thought it was great. Yeah, I mean, I love ginger. I'm not sure I've ever thought to put it with the mint. No, I certainly hadn't. Yeah. I just want to go on record by saying that what I was after may not be what grasshopper pie is. And that's on me. Like that may not be anything wrong with the recipe. What I wanted was really chocolate and really mint. So maybe that's maybe that's not a grasshopper pie. Yeah. I think you were trying to get those creme de menthe brownies is what you were doing. <laughs> ah, for the days of creme de menthe brownies in the office. <laughs> well, Andrea, our last bake along is a preview review. This is the fourth Monday of the month. And of course, we'll be off into August next Monday and our quick bites. This is an almond granita. It comes from Savour. It says nutty sweet almonds are used four ways in this super simple frozen dessert. Andrea, I'm trying to remember, it seems like we've done a granita or you personally have done a granita before. Well, that's interesting. We've done gelato and certainly talked a lot about gelato we've done mm-hmm. a semi-fredo Maybe we of course have done it. multiple ice creams i don't believe we've ever done a granita as a bake along but i'm sure i've talked about it at the top of the show this particular granita i picked because i still have four boxes left over of the almond <laughs> paste from our oh, no. pinoli cookies Just as you were searching for recipes that use, you know, wheat germ after you accidentally bought six pounds of it, I am always on the lookout for recipes that use almond paste. I just thought it would be so interesting to use almonds in, you know, an ice cream in a cold dessert. I tend to think of almonds as something that goes more with chocolate or something that, Mm -hmm. you know, goes with something like warm and filling and nutty. And so the idea of almond and cold and icy really appealed to me here. I also have some almond extract in my pantry, so that was exciting. I knew I wouldn't have to buy it. The other ingredients look pretty straightforward as well. So one and a quarter cup of whole milk, a half a cup of slivered blanched almonds, and you want to toast those, 
a third a cup of sugar, a quarter cup of that canned almond paste we talked about. I'm using the boxed kind and a half a teaspoon of almond extract. And then I thought the garnishes were really pretty. The pomegranate seeds and toasted sliced almonds. So you're getting the brown and the pink on top of that white granita. I I just think this looks really, really Mm -hmm. good. And Andrea, a granita just seems to be like ice milk. Would that be another name for this? I mean, it obviously just has milk. It doesn't have any cream or condensed milk that you might see in a no-churn ice cream. And this is nice. You put it all in the blender. Excellent. I know. And, you know, we had such success with that lemon no-churn ice cream that we did to kick off this month in episode 184, I believe. I've always pulled out my ice cream maker when making ice cream. I just always, always, always do it. And then we made that lemon no-churn ice cream, and it was so good, and it was good for like three or four nights in a row. It didn't harden into that really... Really hard, yeah. I don't know. Normally Mm -hmm. when I use my ice cream maker, yeah, it's really, really hard. And instead, it just stayed soft and smooth and creamy, and so... I am definitely going to make this and I will post in our Facebook listeners group my results and see if it stays as soft and as creamy as that lemon one did because I just think that's a big win if you can get that at home. Yeah, I love using up something from your pantry. I mean, you might have these things if you're lucky enough to have overbought on the almond paste or if that's just an ingredient (laughs) that you have around, right? I mean, milk, almonds, sugar, and almond extract. I love those flavors. I like the idea of something a little different, too. This is not a flavor that you would see just in your grocery store freezer, probably. Right. That's always nice. Plus, the pretty pomegranate seeds and more toasted almonds. So a really nice way to round out this month. And congratulations to us. Have we even turned on the oven once? I don't think so. We did it. So remember, we'll have a link to the recipe almond granita from Savoie, as well as the no-bake grasshopper pie from the Spruce Eats in the show notes for this episode, episode 187, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, it's time for one of our favorite segments, the Listener Roundup. We've got such a great group of followers, and as usual, they outdid themselves when asked to name their favorite summertime treats. I know, as usual, it was the perfect blend of feedback. Many of them hit on my favorites, a few reminded me of things I'd forgotten about, and some were a bit of a mystery. Let's start out with the favorites. Longtime listeners know I'm a fan of anything lemon, and I'm happy to know I'm not alone. Listener Marta enjoys making a vegan lemon curd that she uses to make her mini lemon meringue pies, while Clark and Olivia both love their lemon bars. Ingrid fondly remembers her Aunt Helen's frozen lemon dessert, which she tells us is basically just whipped condensed milk, lemon juice, and sugar on a graham cracker crust. Oh, easy and delicious. Tracy reminded us of the amazing lemon crunch bars from episode 85.5, which I completely loved, but somehow haven't gotten around to making since then. So thank you for that reminder. And now a bit of a mystery. Brandy mentioned a lemonade dessert. Now, I'm guessing Brandy uses frozen lemonade concentrate to make this, but Brandy, let us know. Stefan, as usual, this always happens to me. A listener says something, I've never heard of it, and then the next day I see it. Yeah. Right after Brandy posted about this lemonade dessert, and I thought, I've never seen a lemonade dessert, the very next day in my feed, I saw someone with a pink lemonade dessert. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, pink lemonade. I've forgotten about pink lemonade. Oh, see? It's happening. (laughs) 
Well, while it appears that lemons may be a number one summertime hit, strawberries are running a close second. Both Ingrid and Juliet like the classic strawberry shortcake, while Karen prefers her strawberries macerated and served on top of a cheesecake. Kate is fond of balsamic strawberries, but worried it might sound off-putting. Never fear, Kate. You aren't alone. Listener Lauren worked in an ice cream store that served strawberry ice cream with a drizzle of balsamic vinegar and agreed that it may sound odd, but it tastes amazing. And Rebecca also likes balsamic strawberries, but in a beverage with a little club soda, vodka, and perhaps a basil leaf. Um, Stefan? Oh. You still oh, there? Sorry, no, I just ran to the kitchen to whip that up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, it can't be dessert in the summer without a healthy dose of ice cream, as both Rachel and Rebecca reminded us. Maggie likes Nigella's Honey Semifredo and even posted a relaxing video of Nigella effortlessly making some, all while looking gorgeous, of course. Andrea, do you recall the Semifredo with honeyed peaches we made back in episode 84? Oh, I do. That was another case where I found it a bit too tart while you found it a bit too bland. But given my deep-seated love for one of Nigella's other frozen desserts, <clears throat> no churn, salted caramel bourbon ice cream, <clears throat> I should probably give this one a try too. What do you think? I'm already on it. Ah. Our final ice cream entry came from Amy, who recently made some blueberry maple buttermilk ice cream. That's not a combo that I've heard before, but it sounds incredible. Speaking of ice cream, I was intrigued by Sarah's description of big, thin cookie cups that she bakes on the back of a muffin tin. She uses these to serve scoops of ice cream in, and bonus, no spoon required. That sounds like the perfect way to end an outdoor summer party. On to the age-old pie versus cake question, where we had a few fans weigh in from both sides. Natalie likes a mandarin orange cake, while Juliet enjoys a simple angel food cake topped with strawberries and whipped cream or creme fraiche. Stefan, I must admit that does sound like the quintessential summer dessert to me. And then when it comes to pie, we heard about some good ones. Bliss loves her mother-in-law's peach blueberry pie, while Nate Alyssa prefers a strawberry pie and ice cream. And while it's not pie, it is hot fruit. Jocelyn mentioned a stone fruit cobbler, while Lauren whips up a galette with in-season peaches. I really liked how Lauren took note that her galette requires in-season peaches. There's just nothing like an in-season strawberry or peach to remind you of the glories of summer fruit, is there? It's so true. And it reminds me of that classic and delicious peach pie we made in Stone Fruit Month, September 2018. Oh, yes. Another one of my favorites, the pavlova, gets several votes from La Wolf, Susan, and Robin. And Jessie yearns for anything nostalgic, like funnel cakes, egg creams, and root beer floats. Speaking of floats, listener Barbara, never one to be outdone, managed to pick one dessert that crossed multiple categories. It's got lemon and ice cream and nostalgia. Ah, right up your alley, Andrea. So true. Barbara makes a lemon curd ice cream from a recipe by Baked by Rachel. Then she adds the ice cream and soda water to a glass to make a delicious lemon float. Thanks for that idea, Barbara. I have not thought of making floats with other flavors. If your kitchen's already too hot and you don't want to make it even hotter, don't forget you can go outside and use your barbecue. Both Tracy and Jessie enjoy grilling fruit, while Brittany makes her grilled peaches or pineapple with cinnamon and whipped cream. Now, I especially enjoyed the honesty of Lydia, who said, It's too hot. I can't bear to bake. Although I may 
occasionally enjoy a fudgesicle. And speaking of fudgesicles... Listener Josh kicked off another great conversation about ice cream truck favorites. From drumsticks to rocket pops to push-ups and king cones, I was amazed to see how fondly people remembered those classic childhood treats. Stefan, I think of ice cream trucks as a uniquely American thing, but of course I was raised on them down in the South. Have you seen ice cream trucks on the streets of London? Well, kind of. I haven't seen any driving down the streets of London, but maybe I'm just not paying attention. The one I'm most familiar with here is called Mr. Whippy, whose specialty is called the traditional 99, and that's a vanilla soft serve on a cone or a cup with your choice of toppings, like Oreo cookies or sprinkles. And it's almost always served with a portion of a flake candy bar on the top. In the warmer months, you'll find Mr. Whippy or similar ice cream vans in the parks, and my son's school even hired one for their sporting day event, which is like a track and field day at the end of the school year. Since I'm not a huge vanilla soft serve fan, I tend to go for the packaged ice cream offerings like a classic Magnum or Cornetto, which is similar to an American drumstick. But this summer, maybe I'll be brave enough to try a knobbly bobbly, and that's chocolate and strawberry ice cream covered in chocolate with sprinkles, if I can keep a straight face while ordering. (laughs) Well, I would love to try a Mr. Whippy or a knobbly bobbly. (laughs) But for now, I'll stick with my plain old ice cream sandwich, always my favorite. Well, listeners, let us know if we missed any of your favorite sweet treats to beat the heat. Send us an email at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or drop us a note in our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning. Next month, we're taking our annual August hiatus, but don't despair. We'll have episodes all month long in our shorter quick bite format, and we'll both return in September with our feature length episodes. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams. See you in September. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. I used almost all of it. I just reserved some for a topping on top because that's where toppings go. (laughs) 